Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from the office of the law firm HBA, high above Bryant Park in the fashion district of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and self-styled, well-dressed man. For this episode, I'm joined by the founder of menswear brand LGFG Fashion House, Dimitri Tuxer. Dimitri, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me here. And so, Dimitri, we are, this is the first Law of Style episode, or Laws of Style episode, um, where we are doing a Skype call. Where are you calling in from? Yeah, I'm in Estonia, which is ironically the founding, uh, the country that founded Skype. Okay. <laughs> Little known fact. All right. Well, on to, uh, on to other uh, Estonian uh, startups uh, and companies founded. Tell us about LGFG and, um, you know, how you came to found it and some of the challenges that perhaps you faced as an entrepreneur. Well, so the company actually was founded in Canada because I'm Canadian uh, and it was in Calgary, Alberta. And uh, about four or five years ago, I moved to Estonia and, and the company headquarters and everything kind of came with that. And we've sort of been expanding from here. This has been our sort of the brain and the heart of our organization's base here. Okay. And, and the idea was pretty straightforward. I mean, again, it was, it was about uh, bringing convenience to clients where most men don't like shopping. I mean, there are obviously some dudes that do. Uh, but most men just don't. It's just a fact, and it's not something we were ever going to change, right? Uh, so the idea was to bring the products to our clients in their home or office. Primarily, it's at the office. So if we're dealing with lawyers, which we deal with a lot, uh, you know, we'll come to their law firm a, a couple days a week or a couple days a month, depending on the size of the firm, and then we'll have folks come in and do their shopping, get measured there, and everything is pretty quick. And the delivery and the fitting takes place in their office as well. So for a lawyer like you, you might charge a thousand bucks an hour. Um, you know, going to the store on a Saturday or on a Friday and going to, the, you know, finding parking, going through shop to shop, all that stuff. You know, I, I think we're probably saving our clients more money than they're spending, uh, you know, if you think about billable hours. So that's been the model. And keep the lawyer at the desk. They're always productive at the desk. Yes. <laughs> you know, we we want to keep our salespeople productive, just like the way law firms want to keep their lawyers billing. I mean, that's the that's the reality. And and and. When you're doing that, you're also servicing your clients at the highest level. So, so it's a win-win relationship between client, lawyer, firm, and, and in our case, between us and our clients as well. Um, you know, and challenge-wise, I mean, it's, I think every entrepreneur and every organization faces similar challenges, which would be cliche to repeat. But, you know, first and foremost is how do you break through the noise and get the client to try your service above the thousands of other options available to them? Much like as a lawyer, you know, how do you get a client to come on board with you when there are thousands of other options available. And that's, and that's the challenge, the primary challenge everybody faces, yeah. right? So what are, what are, other than doing podcasts, which is maybe a non-traditional um, you know, method to reach your customer, what are some of the other things that you've done as an organization to reach out? So one thing is we film a TV show that's on YouTube called The Suitmaker. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it a little bit, but I'll actually... Yeah, very, very informative. I enjoyed it. That's awesome. So, you know, I'll travel to meet with our clients uh, and with our manufacturers and actually record it into 30, 20 to 30 minute episodes where it's very high production value. Uh, but we get a chance to share the stories of our clients. And these are like pretty legit shows. The guys that do it for us, the production team was working on Top Model Finland. Uh, so I hired a good crew behind me. And, it's, you know, it's getting a bit of traction. That's, again, uh, that's investing into the brand and showing that we take our brand seriously. Um, we folk, we're a very software driven company, which, 
the client doesn't see, but what it does is it increases our level of execution, meaning that if we're calling out to clients, we're able to track and implement uh, ways to grow. If we're, you know, grow our, our own productivity in-house, let's put it that way, which of course results in higher return at mm -hmm. the end. Uh, we partner with many, many events around the world. Today, we're at some private equity conference in Vienna, Austria. We were at the Nordic Business Forum last week, both Sweden and, and Norway, which was an event where Simon Sinek was speaking, where we're putting our brand in front of thousands of you know, prospective buyers. And again, showing that we're serious about our brand, that we're actually putting significant investment into the resources behind our brand because we're serious in what we do. Um, and of course, you know, execution is 90% of, of the business. Like there is obviously the idea, but most ideas, most ideas are kind of good anyways. It's the execution where the ideas fail. Well, so let's talk close a little bit. Um, and obviously LGFG is international, uh, in terms of its client base, um, personal opinion. I mean, the differences between the way men dress and present themselves in Europe versus the United States versus Asia. Maybe articulate some of those. And, you know, if you have men that, um, you know, disproportionately on a geographical basis use the service. Yeah. So I think the number one thing about, for example, Europe is that people just don't want to look American. <laughs> Americans don't want to look American either. Well, there you go. You know, American, American suits are known and they're, you know, and again, this is cliche, but it's kind of that big, three-button baggy suit, you know, with pleats. Okay, cool. And that works in the South. I mean, guys like that. They like comfort, and that's great. But that's just not the European market. Like, when we're selling, you know, let's say into Sweden or into Switzerland or, you know, similar places, what happens is people, of course, want that sort of a fitted, slimmer, shorter look. It's just how it is. And it's, and it's coming in the U.S. as well. I'm sure in bigger financial markets like California or New York, that's what people prefer now, too. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that's not sort of the traditional American look. <laughs> Uh, so there's, you know, there's that look aspect in terms of color. There's actually a really good part in the last episode of the suit maker we filmed with our, uh, production house, uh, leader, Edward, who's our head tailor. And he talks how, you know, bright colors, uh, and, and things that are a little bit more exorbitant tend to sell better in the far East. Like Hong Kong is one of our better selling offices right now. And we are seeing, seeing a much bigger preference for brighter, more bold patterns, uh, more, uh, let's say exclusive colors that you would not find on a typical legal profession, you know, legal professional in the United States. Is this in suiting or odd jackets? Both, actually, both. So you'll see a lot of, like in the states, you know, the uh, from my experience, the furthest people tend to go in a corporate setting would be like a Prince of Wales, which is not very exorbitant, but already it's not a solid. Whereas in Asia, you're going to see a lot of, you know, window panes and and unique combinations of window paints you know bright pinks and yellows and things that again would be considered a little too dandy in the united states to wear in a, in a serious office but are actually quite culturally acceptable in the far east interesting well so tell our listeners the importance really of custom tailoring versus purchasing off the rack and you know uh, what they're getting by by getting a tailored product versus uh something off the rack so I have a different opinion of this than most people because I think as a CEO of a fashion house, people would expect a custom fashion house, people would expect me to say, you know, better fit and unique and all that. And that's all nice. For me, it's a little different. Look, I'm a 46 regular off the rack and I fit perfectly. No adjustments. I'm just built to be fit off the rack, um, which people are surprised to hear. But here's the thing with the way that the world is set up today with the amount of information. Let me put this way: the amount of 
the way that logistical costs have been reduced so significantly by realizing economies of scale, a custom suit today costs not more than a suit off the rack. It doesn't cost more. It's the same thing. So if you're going to go one way or the other, why not go custom? Like what's, there's, no, there's no financial restraint to do it. It used to be reserved for uh, you know, the very wealthy. It's not anymore. Um, and, and so you know, depending, of course, on the quality you want, you can, you can get a matching quality level off the rack or custom at the same price point. So why not get something made for yourself if there's no barrier to entry? Mm -hmm. Well, so I believe your suits are made in England. And is there a particular design philosophy that, that you align with, or is it, um, you know, a free-for-all? Yeah, so initially when we started, the idea was, you know, kind of British tailoring, which is straight lines, which is, uh, you know, more fitted. The difference, of course, for those people that don't know, most people kind of do know, is that Italian tailoring tends to be a little bit more freestyle. Like, there's some, let's say, allowance for error in Italian tailoring that's part of the beauty, you know, like especially Neapolitan, which I covered in episode two of The Suitmaker, where we actually visit a famous Neapolitan tailor, where you see, you know, a bigger, baggier sleeve, as the tailor says, so that you can reach out to kiss the lady's hand. Uh, you see some minor imperfections in the stitching, right, because it's done by hand, and, and that's great. We started out kind of looking at straight lines and kind of, you know, because British tailoring comes from the military. So kind of like the way that you're dressed right now, you see like straight lines, very impeccable, very detail orientated. And that's fantastic. And um, and that's been a, a big hit for us. However, as we've grown up, we've realized that, in fact, part of being a custom house is not about imposing your image onto others. It's about letting others realize their own vision. Uh, and so it has become a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more loose in the sense that we do a lot of linen. We do a lot of cotton. Um, we, we do things that people want. And I have, a, you know, looking at our client database, there are clients that tell us straight up, they say, look, I know that young men want to dress a certain way, but that's not who I am. And I prefer my clothes baggy. And, and I'll simply tell them up front, I'll say, look, if that's the case and they ask where you got your suit, make sure to preface that answer with, I told them that this is what I wanted. <laughs> right, right. Well, do you find that, um, your customers are a great source of marketing in and of themselves, that, that word of mouth is, is a component of your success? They're the only source of marketing, really. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, social selling is core to our business model because we're not an online retailer. So there's, you know, we don't do like pay-per-click advertising and we're likewise not a physical retailer. So there's nobody that's going to walk in off the street. Uh, so our entire reputation is built on our clientele. Well, so you know, Dimitri, because you've read my book cover to cover at this point, that I elucidate a bunch of guidelines for men, and in particular white-collar professionals, to dress in a manner that is capable and elegant. That that really, those, those are two, you know, goals. Um, and as a lawyer, that's best done in tailored clothing, I feel. Um, as an entrepreneur, but an entrepreneur in tailored clothing, how do you think you best present yourself i mean today sartorially you have you have some colors and patterns going on there's a you've got a you've got a pin is this your normal look and you know if so what what does it communicate about you and the product that you put forward so when i was still seeing clients face to face which i don't get too much anymore because we have people that do it and i'm sort of behind the operation uh, one of the things that i found myself constrained by is that i lived in downtown and my office was in downtown, and I would run into my clients when I would just take the garbage down in my building. And so I couldn't wear a T-shirt and a pair of shorts taking the garbage down in my building because uh, people would see me that I knew. I had clients living in my building, right? 
Um, and a couple of times where, you know, you see a tailor wearing a t-shirt and shorts, you kind of think it's a little weird. Um, so I sort of had to dress up just to take the garbage out. And that became the norm, right? Um, now, obviously, not everybody is constrained by the same kinds of constraints that, you know, your lawyer not in that business. But I would put it this way. Uh, if a client runs into, like, I'll give you an example. It's a true story because I won't name names, but I had a prospective client I went to see who was a partner at a, at a prestigious law firm one time. I won't say the city, I won't say the firm, but anyways, uh, I was, uh, you know, I met with him and, and we, you know, we did some transactions. And then later, a few weeks later, I was walking probably with my girlfriend and my wife, you know, walking by some, you know, some downtown, it was a pub outside and the same lawyer was outside throwing up. And, uh, and, and the, point of the, the point of the story is what I witnessed was a profound moment of incompetence. You know, if you're a partner at a, at a, at a firm, and especially in this case it was a fairly prestigious firm, um, there is a certain level of competence you have to present in all areas of your life, not just at work, because that reflects on you as an individual and that reflects at your core, at your core character, right? And so even though I don't need to wear a suit everywhere I go, I, I nonetheless have a requirement not to be seen as incompetent in anything that I do. That's important for me internally within my organization to set the culture straight. It's important for me externally because that's the client. That's what the client sees, and that's the same advice that I would pass on to anyone else that's a professional. Yeah, yeah. Well, there have actually been studies done, which I, I lay out a few of them in the book about enclosed cognition, that we are actually higher functioning and more capable of abstract thought when we are in tailored clothing. Um, so you might want to look into those studies. Those could be good little, uh, a good little fodder for additional, uh, additional marketing. So back to clothes specifically, what are two essentials for every white collar professional in terms of suiting? If, if a man is buying his first two suits, what two suits should those be irrespective of where he is on the planet, assuming that he's a lawyer, a banker, an accountant, a service professional? Well, back for a second uh, to your point about your book and how you outlined studies that reference, uh, you know, LGFG, the, what it stands for, it's actually a phrase. Uh, and it was a famous Deion Sanders phrase back when he played football, which was when you look good, you feel good. And when you feel good, you play good. Mm -hmm. And when you play good, you get paid good. <laughs> Dion, Neon, Dion. That's a blast from the past clothing and just your image of yourself is reflective of your creativity and your productivity is implicit to our brand. We believe that as well. It's also a feedback loop, I feel, in that you are putting out a very confident version of yourself and you are getting feedback externally that is positive because people are looking at you in a certain way. You look sharp, you look capable, you are confident, your chin is cocked up maybe a couple of degrees higher. And with that feedback, you just, it actually enhances your confidence more. So it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing to experience. And, um, you know, uh, tailored clothing is not the only way to do it, but, um, it's, it's a good, uh, it's a good shorthand. Um, so back to the essentials. Um, Two suits to four suits. I mean, I, I, I talk about four suits in, in the book. But um, if a man is buying just his first two suits, what, what should those most advisably be? Yeah, so always a solid navy and a solid charcoal because they just go with everything. And most men are not good at matching outfits. And even, even if you are, you get the biggest combination of matching with charcoal and dark navy. 
Yeah. And in terms of um, how many looks a man can can transform those two suits into, particularly because they're solids, right? And so, you know, the, the shirt and tie and pocket square combinations are, are virtually endless. Um, is, that, is that how you guide men for first purchases to, to really stick with solids, stick with basic colors, the sort of Beau Brummel uh, dark palette initially? Absolutely, because I want my clients to wear my product. That's uh, that's essential. They don't even if even if it looks amazing, they don't wear it because they're afraid to and, or it doesn't fit into whatever situation. Um, you know, I lose and they lose, and that's that's not good. Yeah. Do you have thoughts about the difference between fashion and style? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I would say this. I would say that uh, fashion is the government currently in power, and style is who you're voting for. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, on that note, what is one style rule for you personally that you never break? I always, uh, I always, always, always are slightly overdressed for every situation uh, because the consequences of being slightly overdressed are generally slightly positive and the consequences of being slightly underdressed are generally magnificently more negative. Yeah, I talk about, you know, one of the laws of style is that really in terms of formality, one should always dress more formally than your client. And the only real ceiling on that is making sure that perhaps you don't dress too luxuriously or profligate, right? That, you know, you're not sporting the the gold mariner watch and the, you know, that, that there are certain clients for whom they're going to see your billable rate in in some of your choices um but tailored clothing often can be a hidden luxury insofar as even a very expensive suit if it's executed well doesn't necessarily look expensive it doesn't scream you know this cost five thousand dollars um maybe speak to that and you know do your customers appreciate that or is that something that they learn to appreciate through spending time with your tailors I think everything in life, like, no, look, most of us aren't born super wealthy. Some are, and that's great, you know, good for you, but most of us aren't. Most of us that are in a position of some sort of power, let's phrase it as power, are generally there because we're competent at what we do. And we take, we're conscientious. We take pride in our work. Like, it's important for us to do a good job. We take pride in our work. And what we get as a result of the work that we put out, which we take tremendous pride in, is we get a feedback from the university. You're doing a good job. And how do we get that? Well, you get paid. And, and when you get paid, the way that you reinforce yourself as a competent human being is you get yourself something. You know, for some of us, we, I mean, most of us eventually we rent or buy a nicer apartment or house because it's, because it becomes core to our identity. We upgrade our vehicle from the 1988 Toyota Corolla we drove in university um, to something a little bit more representative of our level of competence in society. That's important. And eventually, that transliterates also into our clothing. So it's not just a matter of appreciating fine clothing, which, of course, it feels better. Of course, it's nicer. Of course, it looks better. Like, of course. I mean, otherwise, it wouldn't exist, of course. But also, like, when I put on my suit in the morning, it's not just about that. It's about the reinforcement that I'm competent, which is very important to me. And, and when you're talking white collar, what's more important to a corporate lawyer than being competent? Yeah. No. Well put. Um, well... As a rule, I ask my guests who they're wearing, 
and I imagine your suit comes from LGFG, but the other elements of your ensemble, do they come from other brands, or are they all produced by you? No, I refuse to wear anything else but LGFG, and it's, uh, you know, even when we launch a new product, like we launched recently a line of bamboo t-shirts because we have clients that are marketing guys that wear suits with a t-shirt underneath, which is happening, you see that today. And so yeah. we launched a very high-end bamboo t-shirt, which is a, a proprietary fabric that we came up with, 90% bamboo, 10% lycra. Uh, it doesn't absorb moisture, it doesn't wrinkle, it's better for travel. Like it's just an incredible product, which I, I'm wearing right now under my, my dress shirt, right? Okay. When we were testing, it took us three years to launch this because we were testing different fabric combinations. I tested them on myself. And so why, even though the initial ones were not very good and, and they were just terrible products, but... I was wearing, we weren't selling them yet, but I was wearing them because I wanted to learn about what my clients want to know about. Okay, so whether it's a, a mature product for us, whether it's our best seller, like this suit, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, ties or a t-shirt that is brand new to us and we haven't even released it to market and won't for three years, I still take it upon myself to wear our product so I know what our client feels. Suit is LGFG, tie is LGFG, shirt is LGFG, t-shirt is LGFG, bamboo socks are LGFG, Handmade shoes in Spain, LGFG, bamboo boxers, LGFG. Everything I'm wearing is LGFG. Well, that fact notwithstanding, um, are there any contemporary brands that you appreciate uh, from a design perspective, whether menswear or womenswear? I'll open it up. Definitely. Uh, so I'm a big fan. I'm a collector of a brand of watches called Tonino Lamborghini. This is uh, one right now. Lovely. And the reason I like it is because I really like cars. I visited the Ferruccio Lamborghini Museum in Italy last week. Um, and so the fact that their watches combine uh, design elements from cars, like you'll see this watch is designed after a steering wheel. There's some ones that have like literal brake pad designs and they have carbon fiber finishings to reflect a racing car. That connects with me as an individual. So Tonino Lamborghini watches, I'm really, really big in. I'm big into watches in general. I, I really like Audemars Piguet. I like Hublot a lot. Um, those are brands that, that speak to me. Um, I'll say this here before, uh, before we had released a line of shoes, which we make bespoke shoes and they're just terrific. I really admired two brands. I really liked Ferragamo, uh, for their design elements. And you see a lot of that in our shoes. Like you'll see a lot of wingtip Crocs, which are sort of a Ferragamo signature. So, um, I got a lot of those into our collection and I really liked, uh, you know, Alan Edmonds, the classic shoe brand. Um, because they're one of the last brands that still used Goodyear welts in their shoes, which um, even though I wasn't a fan of how firm it was, I loved that the shoes lasted forever and could be resold. And so yeah. we also launched a line of Goodyear welts uh, to give our clients that same option, which was inspired by a great company like Allen Edmonds. Yeah. Does LGFG make their shoes in England as well? No, in Spain. In Spain. Okay. Yes. A lot of, lot of great manufacturings come out of Spain over the last couple of decades. Um, well, pivoting a little bit to the industry, um, I've seen a lot of unisex brand propositions coming online. Uh, my firm represents a few of them. What do you think about unisex as, uh, you know, a, 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 an answer at retail for certain men and women? Do you think it has a future or do you feel that it is perhaps kind of latching on to a Gen Z fluidity, perhaps, with sexuality in some ways, um, and it's just a trend. 
That is an amazing question. And how does one answer that question without shooting oneself in the foot? You know what I mean? So, um, <laughs> hey, I asked the hard questions here on the laws of style. Let's say this. So, I mean, of course it has a future because everything has a future. Like, you know, everybody likes a different kind of cake and there's a lot of different kind of cakes out there and there's a lot of different kind of people out there. So you're going to find somebody that likes Neapolitan and somebody's going to like something else. That's not going away to some percentage of people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, me personally, and I'll say this without recourse, realizing how dangerous it is to say, I take pride in my masculinity. You know, like I do. Like I have a daughter. I also have two sons. Um, and I'm not... You know, I'm not denying my sons the fact that I can tell that my son, who was just at my office earlier for lunch with my wife, we had a little family party. My son has an affinity for certain things which are implicit to him as a character. Like, he just loves motorcycles. My daughter likes ponies. It's just how they are. You know what I mean? So for me, um, I take pride in my manly dress. If You know, if some people could refer that to it as manly. I don't know. But to me... Um, I like that, okay? And uh, so, do I, I know, unisex clothing, great. Nothing against it, let it be, and that's cool. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, I like to see uh, in our office, you know, our ladies wear suits. But they have, you know, softer tones. They're wearing plum, they're wearing, uh, you know, colors that would be traditionally, let's say, affiliated with females. And some people might be offended by that, and I'm not, because I realize that those colors are traditionally affiliated with females. The same way that my daughter's favorite color is pink, and I don't know why, it just is. Um, so yes, uh, gender fluid clothing have a future. Do I think they're going to be the way to go? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so because there are people like me out there as well. And I take tremendous pride in the fact that, uh, as a man, I am responsible for certain things. I don't expect my wife to be responsible for, for no other reason that it gives me tremendous pride to be responsible for those things. And, uh, you know, like providing for my family, I take tremendous pride in that. Uh, being being uh, a leader at home and outside of home, I take pride in it. My wife's a leader in other areas, of course, uh, but they are not the same areas because my areas of competence are different from her areas of competence. Uh, and therefore, my way of dress is reflective of me as a character and me as a character. Masculinity is a part of that character. Got it. Well, another question, industry question. Um... My firm represents a lot of brands, and many of those brands have used influencers. And by influencers, I'm going to say individuals who, who may have some fame and certainly have a following uh, on social media platforms for no reason other than they have a following on social media platforms. And what they post is of interest to a certain segment of, uh, of the consuming public. Um, brands have latched onto that in, in a way that is um, potentially quite enabling in terms of marketing uh, the product. Is that something LGFG does, or if not, would you ever consider doing that? Uh, yes and yes. I mean, obviously, social proof works. Um, that's, you know, if you read like Robert Cialdini's, what is it, Influence, the, probably the preemptive marketing book on influence in itself. I mean, it's been, it's been empirically proven, so it's not just, it's not just anecdotal to us, you know. Um, and, and we are definitely, you know, working with some professional athletes that we do like to post their picture on social media and repost it because it gives us certain um, social proof. And yes, I think in the near to medium future, probably we will also latch on to somebody, whether it's a person or, or a group of people that um, we could officially, let's say, partner with to be the face of our brand. Because I think from the from the objective evidence in the world and what we see internally, it, it seems to it seems to have 
positive feedback from clients. Yeah. How do you develop your marketing plans? I know that um, over the past few months, I've seen random posts with animal heads affixed to well-dressed uh, male torsos, um, which I think is is clever. And um, you know, there's there's a nice uh, there's a nice description of you know whether it's the lion or the bear or the buffalo um, that sort of puts that animal in a business setting. Um, is that going to be a consistent feature of LGFG or is that a, um, you know, and, and how long have you been doing that? What was the kernel, um, of, of that marketing plan? Um, honestly, the kernel of it was really funny is that there's a couple, but the, one of the main ones, uh, there's, there's one I can't talk about because it was part of a secret marketing strategy. We're still deploying. And, and once it, once it lands, I'll make a big announcement about it. I expect it to land about September. Okay. And, and once we, once it lands, I think people will understand the connect, the connection. But the initial thought about it was, well, we, we use our own employees as models in our brand. And so we, put, we publish a magazine, we send it out to clients to put on social media. It's our own people. We have beautiful employees. I mean, we're lucky that way. Um, and uh, we thought about how do we remarket these same photos from the season, from two, three seasons ago. And we thought, well, if we put animal heads on them, it's a different photo now, right? Right. Um, so that was, but, but it grew to something bigger because, uh, you know, I had one made of me that was, our designer made one of me and I was a tiger and I thought, man, I can relate with the tiger. You know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, of a hunter type. I like to, you know, pounce on opportunities. I like to be dominant in my environment. It's just how I'm built. And I'm like that really. And then, and then she said, well, why don't we do a for different, you know, there's a, my CFO, he's really more of an owl. You know, he's a very wise, methodical you know, qualities associated with owls. I have a wolf in my office who's a true, like, just loves to hunt. You know, I got a couple of chameleons and I thought, hey, let's put that in the corporate setting. And what's cool about it is when, if you look at LinkedIn, some people comment and they go, oh my God, you put a, a buffalo there. And I always thought of myself as a buffalo and, and people connected with that. So it's kind of a um, fortuitous that that worked for us. And yeah, it'll be an, uh, and I interviewed a lady in New Zealand who might watch the show later that received an offer from our company and she told me she goes you know she has a son and she her son really likes fashion and she said i told my son that i i have this interview with lgg fashion house and the son goes i know those guys they do animals on instagram <laughs> no it's a great calling card well so for our listeners who want to establish a relationship um you know make use of the service or evaluate making use of the service how do they go about doing that uh well, so typically we reach out to people because we call on people in companies and obviously offer our services or they might meet us at an event. Uh, but if somebody's interested and they want to explore our brand and, and see what we're about, they can visit our website at lgfg.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, any, uh, any final words, Dimitri, before we, uh, before we break? All right. Thanks for, uh, thanks for putting this out into the universe. I think, uh, there was a great podcast recently that I watched. You might have seen it, actually. If you haven't, check it out. It's uh, it's on Joe Rogan's podcast. He has Guy Ritchie on the show. Okay. And Guy Ritchie has about an eight-minute segment just talking about how important it is to for him to wear a well-tailored suit and what it represents to him as a man, as a person, as an individual, as a professional, as a producer. Um, and, you know, just putting that out into the world, I think, creates a lot of positivity. So thank you for putting this out into the world because – whether people do business with me or you is considerably less relevant to the message that is being sent out and, and what it brings back. Well, thanks for joining us. That's a wrap. Uh, I will send you a copy of the Laws of Style. I know you already have one, but every guest gets one. 
and um, look forward to watching the success of LGFG in the future. Thank you, Doug. Bye now.